everybody, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Today is gonna be a little bit different. This video is focused on a very specific thing that I'm trying to figure out, and that is I'm trying to figure out what sort of sermons, church experience, communication that atheists uh, hate the most (laughs) and what they most appreciate. Now, I know what you're thinking, and some of you have told me so on Twitter, you're like, Braxton, we don't care about sermons. We think that sermons are awful. We think that they're tools of indoctrination. We think that, yeah, I've got it. I got it. But I actually got some people that have, have, through all the, you know, vitriol and and things like that, I, I got some people who are giving me real good feedback. And the reason someone, you know, kind of cynically was like, uh, I hope you're not doing this just to get a bunch of quotes from atheists so that you can stand in a pulpit somewhere and talk about, you'll not believe what these horrible atheists said. That's not the point. That's not the goal. That's what my co-host would like to do with some of them. But no, uh, the point is, what I want to do is I'm trying to figure out uh, how best to communicate uh, our message to skeptics. I'm trying, I'm trying to figure this out. And so today, what I have is a sermon. Now, 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 calm down. Don't leave. Don't click it off, uh, please. Uh, but what I would like for you to do is, for the Christians and the atheists, is to listen to this sermon. It's not me. It's my pastor. I've played clips from him before. And if if you if you care about having good dialogues or good discussions, what I would encourage you to do, this is your chance. This is your chance to tell us what we're doing wrong, you atheists out there. And uh, what I'd like you to do, both Christians and atheists, is to take a listen to this sermon. I think that this is fantastic for communicating uh, this discussion that we have all the time online to the uh, to the church audience, to the, to the to the skeptics and atheists and Christians in your community. Obviously, mostly Christians are going to be there. And to that end, if you're a Christian, uh, I think there's good stuff here that you can learn from, that you can glean from, and that will help you in having conversations with others. But what I would ask some of you to do is to thoughtfully, actually reflect. And as much as you dislike the whole church thing, um, what I would ask you to do is to really consider. Um, what could what what is good about this? What do you like about it? And what don't you like? And and put that in the comments section. That will be actually really helpful, I think, not just to me, not just to us, but to those of you out there who are skeptics, but who are interested in pastors presenting messages that are meaningful. And the dialogue that we're trying to have, I was just recently on somebody else's show talking about how to have better dialogues and communication. Well, the principal way that, uh, that, or at least the most obvious way that Christians communicate what they believe to the world, to the masses, is on Sunday morning on church, on the internet, in actual local church ministries and on television. So this is your time to have your say about this. But again, I'm encouraging you not just to uh, just to use it as a time to insult, but a time to uh, actually think about what, what's good about this. So without going on any longer about it, I'm going to put the links in the description so you can follow the entire series. This is from a series called Centered, where my pastor is talking about how to have a Christ-centered worldview and what that means in the world and with other worldviews on offer. I think he's very fair to those of other worldviews. I want to know what you think. So with that, let's go to the bumper and then the sermon.
So I, I could say this. I think we all will agree, no matter wh- what faith background you have or no faith or trying to get faith or whatever you happen to be, I think everybody would agree that we live in an amazing, mind-blowing, just mysterious, cool, crazy, weird, strange, beautiful world. We do. You, you think about it. Just looking around. And one of my favorite things about this world and, and the, the way it, it, it comes across is, it, is the sheer variety of it all. I mean, there's something for everybody. I don't know if, uh, about you, uh, but I'm a mountain person. Uh, the mountains just put it in me. Do we have some mountains up there? Uh, so I'm a mountain person. But some, some of you are beach people. You know, like beaches, you know, some beach people, we'll, we'll let you participate. That's just fine. You know, some, sometimes uh, people are, uh, have, have beaches put it into them. Uh, there's, think about it. There's flowers. There's these delicate things at the ground. There's flowers. And then above that, there's the vastness of the stars that can create this sense of wonder and mystery and everything else. There's barrenness. Uh, or, or rather, there's caves that you, you kind of look in, you don't know what's going on. There's, there's, there's barrenness that can create longing. And there's also lush jungles and waterfalls and things like that. It's just everywhere. Now, welcome to our series called Centered. And what Centered is, is it's trying to build a Christ-centered worldview in everybody that participates. And what we've ha- how we've defined a worldview is your worldview is your beliefs about the most important and meaningful questions in life. Your worldview is your beliefs about the most important and meaningful questions of life. And the major question, really the the foundational question of all when it comes to the worldview thing, is where did all that cool stuff come from? Where did it all come from? I got to take you back to one more thing. Uh, There's a, I want you to see a couple other creation things. One of them is a pink praying mantis, okay? I didn't know these things existed. Isn't that wild? That, that's out there. Uh, they're sharing that in our next gen and our, our kids. They're showing that to your children right now. Uh, if you have to explain some things, I mean, they're getting a little scared. But th- th- that's out there. I also needed to share this creation thing. As we ask, where did it all come from? Um, some of you are, are, are dog people, so we got to th- give a little shout out to you. That's right. And it was a cheap way to get you to say, aw, what you did. Thank you for doing that on cue. And I know there are cat people too. So, you know, I'm in a good mood. We'll even include you today. That got actually more awes than the puppy did. Okay. That, that, I didn't expect that. I thought the awe level would go up with the puppy more than the kitten. But here live, you know, the kitten got a little bit more awes, which is, shows we have more cat people than dog people, which is kind of a disturbing statistic. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I'm feeling that right now. So, But where did all this stuff come from? It's amazing. It really, really is. And there's all kinds of different answers out there. That's what worldviews do, and they answer them very, very differently. Now, we're going to focus in and celebrate the Christ-centered worldview. And where we're kind of parking ourselves throughout the series, and this was read earlier in the service, we're going to read it again, is that the Apostle Paul is writing a, a letter to a church called, uh, in a town called Colossae. And as he's writing along, he's telling him he's praying for them, and he's doing all these things. And then he breaks into what scholars would say is either lyrics or poetry or a hymn or something. Some think it was actually a song that they would sing back in, the, in, in the, the very first Christians about who Christ is. And listen to the words of the song answering that question. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, it's not hard to tell from the English that the key word, the operative word in that entire thing is all. That word is in the original language when you look at the entire song, is there eight times, all, 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 all. Puppies, kittens, praying mantises, especially pink ones, the stars, the flowers that we look at beneath our feet, all of those things, the breath that goes in and out of your lungs, your kneecaps, your spleen, your spinal cord, all. So it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be debated about what the Bible says about where everything came from. Now that is, what we've shared is the beginning of an assessment of all worldviews. And what we used last week, we're going to keep coming back to this, worldviews are made up of essential things. As you kind of break them down and examine them, examine different beliefs. Number one is claims. Number two is reasons. And we'll talk about this in just a minute. And then there's implications. And finally, actions. All worldviews, all belief systems, whether they're Christian or not, you can assess through these things. Now, what's the, what's the claim that was just made in answer to the question? It was very, very clear. Now, what we want to do is kind of put to the side of the Christian claim is other claims that are out there. We, we talked about naturalism last week. Naturalism is a big thing. It's in our college campuses. It's very prominent there. I don't know if you heard this or not, but uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a very prominent atheist, probably the most prominent atheist in the world or writer, he just released a book called Outgrowing God. Outgrowing God. And, and he said it was written originally for children, uh, but his publishers asked him to make it for students. So he's actually communicating to students what's called naturalism. It goes by a n- number of other names, but uh, there, was a, there was a document released uh, in the 20th century called the Humanist Manifesto. And it says it this way, in answer to the question, Listen to the difference between this and Christianity. They say humans are an integral part of nature, the result of an unguided, you've got to keep your eyes on that, unguided evolutionary change. Humanists recognize nature as self-existing. That's very, very different from the first, uh, first chapter of Colossians, right? Self-existing. That's the answer that, that naturalism would give and that Richard Dawkins is trying to communicate to children and students. The next one uh, is Eastern stuff, you know, Eastern, um, what's called pantheistic monism. And basically, you could kind of, under an umbrella, put everything from Hinduism, forms of Buddhism, New Age, Wicca, they can roughly be painted under what's called pantheistic monism. One scholar describes it this way. Their answer to that question, instead of drawing a bold line between God and his creation, the Hindu text declares them to be one and the same. In other words, all things are God. Monism means one thing. It means that the entire universe is all one spiritual entity that you could call God, but it's impersonal. And then there's Islam. We talked a little bit about that. That's rising in our culture, and we see that in the news, and we have that here in our community. And Islam is very similar to Christianity, where it, where it believes that there was a, that was a God who created everything, but would balk really, really, really hard at that statement that Jesus is the one who created all things. They, they, don't, they, they actually see themselves 
as a corrective of Christianity. They came along several centuries later and said the Christian message was wrong. The Jewish, Jewish message was wrong, especially when it comes to who Christ is. So you can see that the claims are very, very different. And that's something that's very important to keep in mind. Now, the next thing is, we said, is reasons. When it comes to worldviews and belief systems and all the rest, everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, you have reasons why you believe it. You believe it for good reasons. You believe some things for bad reasons. You believe it because you've really, really studied it. Or you, re, or you believe it just because you feel it. You've got a number of different reasons why you believe. But everybody, no matter what you believe about these things, has reasons. So what we want to do over the next few moments, when it comes to that claim about Christianity that Paul wrote to the Colossians, that he, Jesus Christ, is responsible for all things, why would we believe such a thing? And if you've been hanging around in culture very long, you know that this is a real volatile place. It's probably the most volatile argument of all. And I think the reason for that is, is because it's the foundational question. Because if you determine that Christ made all, well, a lot of other questions get answered. But if you determine that everything is just self-existing and made itself, that has a lot of answers that follows it as well. So what do we want to do is talk about reasons why you would believe that Christ really did and is responsible for all things. Now to do this, I'm going to use an illustration that I've used for a good 20 years now. And some of you have heard me, I've heard, seen this before. And the reason I'm doing it is because, first of all, I can't think of a better one. That's the first uh, thing. But the second thing is I think it actually really works. But the third more important thing is I actually want you to use this. In your groups and teams coming up in the coming weeks, I want you to use this mechanism. Now, you see this? These are, these are scales. I'm, I'm showing you these scales because I'm about to draw scales, and you may not be able to tell, okay? That's what I'm trying to do. So I've used these scales for a number of years. This is my interpretation of drawing scales, all right? But you can draw scales too. On a, it's got to have a base. And essentially how this works when it comes to reasons and why I believe things is the way I see faith working is pretty simple. On this side, you have belief, and on this side, you have doubt, and really what it means to believe something is to have more reasons and weightier reasons on this side than you do on this side. That's really what it is. And if you doubt, you've got more on this side. Now, what I like about this is, is that it's showing that belief, and I really believe this, and I experience this, belief is not all the weight over here and no weight over here. I mean, I, this is kind of a portrait of me. I've got, I've got many, many, many more reasons why I believe than I don't. But I still have things over here that I wonder about and kind of question and kind of grapple with. And it helps me sort that out. And now, what we're going to be trying to do over the next few moments is I want to add some weight on this side. And that's what I would challenge you to do. You may have all them you want, but remember... This is talking about a larger cultural thing. You may have enough beliefs of your own and have enough reasons for it, but we're talking about having conversations. We're talking about helping your children and your grandchildren to actually believe these things. So I recommend that you keep collecting weight on this side of the line. Now let me tell you this. Sarah was talking about it a little while ago in her video. The primary place we're going to talk about these scales is on our podcast. We've asked you to attend all the services, uh, get in a group and discuss things, Read the daily Bible readings during the Centered series, but listen to the podcast. 
And this coming week, in addition to interviewing someone who had been an atheist, was one of the things we're going to do, I'm going to give you two of what I believe are the largest and heaviest weights on this side. But that's on the podcast. I'm not going to do that today. You know, so you listen to that. I'll give you the two biggest ones, all right? Today and Sunday, I'm going to give you really kind of minor, almost insignificant ones, all right? Not really. We'll, we'll give kind of significant ones, all right? So we're going to put some weight on this side. Why would I believe that the Christian faith is actually telling me the truth when it comes to the answer of where did everything come from? And I want you to remember three words. And if you can't handle three words, remember one word. That word is mind, okay? Mind. And I'll explain this in a second. First word is mind. And then coming from mind is, believe it or not, I want you to remember math, and I want you to remember language. Remember the examination we're trying to do. We're trying to talk about where did everything came from. We saw what Colossians claimed that all things came from him. Why would we believe something like this? I would argue that you can think in terms of mind, math, and language. Mind, math, language. Mind, math, language. And I think also, and I've used this in coffee shops when I'm talking to people that don't believe, and, uh, and it's a way that I kind of navigate around the traditional creation evolution argument that a lot of people have. It's asking a kind of a it's stepping back and asking a, a deeper question in my mind. I'll explain how this works. A little bit earlier in the service, in addition to the Colossians passage, we read another passage from the book of John, and it's an intro to who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. And here's what it said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, speaking of Jesus, was with God in the beginning, through him. And here's the part that sounds like Colossians. Through him, what? All things were made. Without him, nothing that was made that has been made. There it's making it clear. It's not just in Colossians. It's very, very clear what Christianity's answer to that question is, right? All things, nothing has been made that wasn't made without him. Now, you've probably heard this, and if you've been in church very long at all, in that passage, that word translated word is the Greek word lagos. And I've taught on this many, many times, but I always go back and restudy things. And this time when I studied it, there was a massive article just on this word. And one of the scholars that was talking about it said, what you have to understand is that word lagos for a Greek person, you know, the Aristotles and the Plato's and the Socrates and all that whole world, they would say that if there's one word that summed up their view of the universe and how it actually operated, they would have picked lagos. Because it means several different things. It's a multi-layered word. This is very important for us to understand. It means everything from to gather, to count, to enumerate, to narrate, as in narrating a story or communicate. It can mean calculation, and that includes numbers, but also communication. That's why in English they say word. In the beginning was the word. Now what's that got to do with anything? Well, you could hear inside those definitions that the Greeks were big on math, they were lovers of geometry and everything, and they were big on language. And so they saw the universe as communicating a mind of language and math. It was, it was kind of it was like this rationality out there. And John, when he was trying to communicate who Jesus was to people that thought that way, he's like, what word can I use? What word can I use to kind of explain it? And he picked the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and he was that. Does that make sense? Now here's why. Let me give you this kind of one summary statement 
If you don't remember anything else of reasons or weight on the faith side, when it comes to this whole thing of creation, I would say it this way. Always remember this. The Christ-centered worldview believes that mind came before matter. Matter did not and really could not produce mind. I'll say it again. The Christ-centered worldview believes that mind came before matter, and matter could not produce mind. And that's the coffee shop conversation. I'll ask people, I say, well, do you believe that mind came before matter or that matter produced mind? Simple question. Now, to kind of put this on the shelf where I can understand it too, is me and my grandson have been playing blocks lately, okay? I've learned to re-love blocks. I love blocks. Here's blocks. And what blocks are going to do is they're going to represent matter. They do it pretty well because that's what they are. This is wood. There's, there's blocks like this. And what, what these represent are just different things that float around in the universe, atoms and molecules and solid things like that. And the basic thought that Christians have is that we know that minds can arrange things. I'm not very good at arranging things, but, uh, you know, they can do things like that. They can build. We observe in our experience and universe, we can make things. We can arrange things. We can do things like that. We know that minds do that. It's part of our experience. We, we observe it all the time. Minds do that kind of thing. What's hard to imagine is that matter could just through accidental, and, and the humanist definition a while ago, remember it said it was unguided, an unguided process could actually produce minds that could turn around and build things like that. So in other words, it's very, very hard to envision, if not impossible to envision, how minds that can self-reflect and make decisions and sing songs and go ah over kittens and puppies could come from accidental matter. There's physical matter over here, and there's conscious stuff over here. And that's this big, big mystery. And we would say the answer to it is, is that mind came first. And we experience that all the time, nearly every day. Now, here's a couple ways we experience it. The first one is in math, all right? Now, I have to say this. So it's, I'm in first grade, Hebron Elementary School, east side of Evansville, back in 1874, or whatever it was. It was back there. Always. First grade, we're studying math. We're talking about greater than and less than. Greater than and less than. You remember that? You know, I got the V's going. You know, do that. Greater than and less than. We got a test. I got it. Not a hard concept. You know, 10 is greater than 9. That, that kind of stuff. Pretty, pretty simple thing. I do it. Fill it out. Hand it in. Mrs. Whitman, my first grade teacher. Confident. I come in the next day. So help me. That, I can still see that paper in my mind. It had red all over it, everywhere. I got like a D minus minus. I think she put that too. By the way, D minus 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 minus. Like the Christmas story, you know. Minus minus minus. I, 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 I can still remember that. It ruined me. I was like, <gasps> I thought I got it and I didn't get it. And I, it, I hated math from that day. Never did any more math. I just said, math coming out, I'm protesting. I'm just not doing it at all. So that, I have to say that to, to kind of alert you that first of all, my psychosis, I probably need some therapy. Uh, but second of all, that, that what I'm going to say about math, I'm going to be very, very cautious because n just now I've begun to appreciate its theological importance, okay? So now it's okay in my world for math. But I do feel like, as I'm listening to scholars discuss this stuff, I feel like a child standing on a beach looking out in the ocean. They can't go out there and play around, but I know it's there. One of the great problems 
that's out there in the deep mysteries. Albert Einstein kind of summed up this way. He's known for saying the most incomprehensible thing about the world is it's comprehensible. And that's not exactly what he said. That was somebody's summary. Here's what he said in 1936 in a science journal. The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is a miracle. The fact that it's comprehensible is a miracle. Now, what, what was he getting at? Look at the, you, You've probably seen this chalkboard before in one form or the other, physics chalkboard. You ever seen like a student uh, standing in front of, I think we have a physics chalkboard somewhere. There it is. On that chalkboard, you ever seen that? What's wild about what's happening on that chalkboard, those are mathematical figures and physics and all the rest, is they can put things on a chalkboard that actually are true in reality. But the things on a chalkboard start just in our minds, where our understanding of nature can come first in here just doing math. And then they can walk out and learn that it was real. Now, this, uh, there was a, a Nobel Prize winner uh, named Eugene Wigner who wrote a paper in 1960 called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And what he was talking about, he, he says this, the enormous usefulness of mathematics on the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious, and there is no rational explanation for it. It is difficult to avoid the impression that a miracle confronts us here. Here's why he said that. There's one example. You've, you've all listened to the radio before. So you listen to the radio. There was a guy named James Clerk Maxwell that had, he was playing around with figures around electricity and things like that. Engineers use his figures to these days. What he predicted through marks on chalkboards is that things called radio waves existed, even though he didn't know anything about a radio. He just predicted they would. And then around the time he died, there was another scientist that took his equations and said, there is such a thing as radio and figured out how to make a radio, figured out how to use radio waves, that they actually were there. They were reality. See what they're getting at? They're saying that inside of our heads are the ability to almost foresee what's already out there. The entire universe is built on mathematical principles. And not only is that wild, but it's wild that we can understand it with our minds accurately. That's a very, very important thing to remember. It kind of works this way. You may have heard of this. This, everybody, is called an equalizer an equalizer for sound. And it illustrates a very, very important thing that physicists and mathematicians are also discovering. They say that in our minds, we've figured it out that to make our universe and to make life possible, certain things have to be exactly, precisely right, mathematically. The gravitational pull, strong forces to weak forces, electromagnetism, and all those kinds of things have to be exactly right. Now, what this is illustrating, there's 62 different sliders on, sliders makes me hungry, uh, sliders on this EQ. It probably makes you hungry too. There's 62, and there's a couple dials over here. Basically, what mathematicians will tell you, to get the universe going and to have intelligent life, and even non-intelligent life, every single one of these would have to be set precisely right if this were a universe-making machine. And if they were all set right, except this one was off, the whole thing goes down. It wouldn't produce life. And they're all, or many of them, are mathematical figures that we have in our minds. It's known as the fine-tuning argument. Look it up. Then there's language. Language. You notice that it said logos, the word. The word that word really means communication. And we all know in the 20th century 
the basis of life itself, what was discovered was DNA. And what DNA taught us was that every single living organism, period, from you to puppies to kittens to one-celled organisms, are built around a concept of DNA. And Bill Gates is one that said, DNA is more advanced than any software ever created. What they discovered is that DNA functions exactly like a language. Now, look at how language operates. Language is very, very precise. So if I get rid of these two letters, I still have two letters, but I don't have a meaningful thing to say, right? Or if down here I get rid of this letter, it goes from math to mat, which is more my speed, right? It goes to mat. It, it completely changes its meaning. Or I could go over to this word and get rid of letters and make it where it's something essentially nonsensical. And every single human being and every single living creature there is functions through a language. You may have heard uh, the, the old saying that it, people say, they try to get rid of the whole God concept. They say, well, think about it. If given enough time, monkeys writing on typewriters could come up with the works of Shakespeare. You ever heard, heard that one? I love this. There was a school in England that actually experimented with that. They put a keyboard in a monkey cage with six monkeys. And, uh, and, and they, the result was, I actually saw the transcript of what they wrote. It was like three letters and then about 62 pages of S's. It just <laughs> like that. And the researchers said they actually, after a while, started defecating and peeing on the, on the keyboard. I mean, that's their words, not mine, Okay. But they just want to experiment. Which I love about people. Let's try it. You know, maybe we can come up with Shakespeare from the monkeys. They came up with a lot of S's, all right? But it's because information doesn't function that way. What's the one thing we know about in our experience every single day, all the time, that communicates in language, in meaningful language? It's minds. The Christ-centered worldview believes that mind came before matter and shaped matter. And there's lots of good reasons to think that way. So what are the implications and actions out of that? What are the implications and actions out of that? Let's just imagine for a moment that Jesus Christ really is the one who designed everything, from puppies to the great universe around us. What are the implications of that? That when we come into a place like this and we sing songs, it's... It's the right follow-up. It's, it's, it's amazement. Worship is, worship is acknowledgement. Worship is something that's, that's, that is recognizing worth. Can you think of anyone more worthy than the very one who made the breath come in and out of your lungs? I know this has been a lot of head kind of stuff today. And some of you are kind of into that. And some of you are more of heart people. And so you're like, please let this be over. I want to share a story with you. A man by the name of Blaise Pascal was a mathematician. Don't get scared. After he died, he's one of the most brilliant mathematicians in the history of life and was part of the scientific revolution. He wrote, they, after he died, they found a piece of paper in the lining of his coat. Here's what it said. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November. From about half past 10 in the evening until about half past midnight, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of 
Jacob, or God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals, certitude, certing, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, the God of Jesus Christ. May God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. One finds oneself only by the way of directions taught in the gospel, the grandeur of the human soul. Oh, just Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, joy, tears of joy. The beautiful thing is, the ultimate communication of a Christ-centered worldview is that the maker made us. And there's lots of reasons to believe it. But the implications are that he wants a relationship with us. And we can have one like that. Every week during this series, we're going to finish out with a film that's designed to do three things. Number one, it's designed to summarize what we've been talking about in kind of an artful way. Second, it's to spur discussion in your groups. Watch it in your groups. And third, if you like it, please share it on your social media and live out to talk to the marketplace of ideas out there. This is a film to kind of summarize things. When you really think about it, it's astonishing. This world with its beauty and crazy amount of variety, there is so much to look at, experience, and so much to explore. I think we've all taken turns being blown away by some kind of natural wonder. Maybe it's as common as an extra special sunset on your drive home, or maybe you've taken a vacation and seen something like the Rocky Mountains. Whatever the expression, we've all experienced that sense of majesty and mystery of the world around us. And that's one reason, at some point, we all ask the first and most basic worldview question. Where did it all come from? And like other worldview questions, there's several answers to choose from. For example, many Eastern ideologies could be filed under the broad description of what's technically known as pantheistic monism. That is to say, all of reality is one impersonal, infinite element, and all of it could be collectively called God. And that means all of it has always been here, will always be here, and will continue on in a kind of eternal spiritual wheel. The materialist atheist worldview, which is popular in Western academic circles, would say it all came from something approximating nothing. That nothing includes things like quantum fields, fluctuations, vacuums, and the fundamental laws of physics, but the primary idea here is that all things came from nearly no thing at all. The Christ-centered worldview, which is the worldview we espouse, is summarized well in the words penned by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church of the Roman town of Colossae around the year 60 AD. It's a lyrical celebration of Jesus' identity. Some scholars have suggested it may be a song known and sung by early Christians expressing all they believed Jesus to be. The first section is all about his identity as creator of all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things on earth and things in heaven, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. The Christian answer to where did it all come from is pretty clear-cut. All things were created by Him. That single word, 
him is the most basic and distinguishing marker separating the Christian answer to this most fundamental question from others. According to this early Christian document, all of creation comes from a personal and obviously powerful source. This is an important distinction, and if true, its implications are profound. A personal creator would mean that someone, a mind, a decision maker, meant for all things to be here. This is, of course, the opposite of something like an impersonal force, or impersonal laws, or elements being the source. The idea, if true, it changes everything. To appreciate the Christ-centered explanation for the question, where did it all come from, a workable, although limited metaphor, it can help. An artist. An artist, being a person with a mind, can choose to create something. And assuming this artist has the means and skills to create, he or she can produce something for any number of reasons. Their own pleasure, the pleasure of others, or reasons known only to the artist. But automatically, the work produced would distinguish itself by having meaning. Because it has someone to mean it. Taking the analogy further, it's also helpful to point out that an artist is both separate from the artwork, but could possibly be revealed in the artwork. In being separate from the art, that means the artist is not dependent on the artwork in any way, nor is the artist made of the very same things the art is made of. If this hymn is true, it's accurate to say we came from an artist. But that's not even the most interesting thing about this view of the world. Later in the Christ hymn, the word reconcile is used in reference to the creator. When you put him, a person, and the word like reconcile together, you discover the most amazing idea inside the Christ-centered view of the world. According to the early Christians, all things came from an all-powerful, all-knowing, and obviously wildly creative person with whom we can have a relationship. In short, the Christ-centered view of the world sees relationship with the Creator as the center of all things. And if true, it may explain why we have that beautiful sense of wonder that is often accompanied by the desire we have to share it with someone else.